0: think of a thoroughbred racehorse. Thoroughbreds do not think about what they're going to eat. They don't think about who's going to train them. They don't think about what they're going to do today. They don't think about how they're going to prepare their, their next day. It Everything is taken care of a thoroughbred racehorse. And that racehorse does one thing. It runs and it runs fast. That's it. Uh, domination is a chapter I have in that I want people to start naming what they do and that's all they do so that they know that they're a thoroughbred racer or they're frank sinatra they're actually achieving the top level because they do what they do and the rest is all taken care of that's domination
1: bulletproof radio a state of high performance
2: You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day explains how tardigrades protect their DNA to defy death. Now you might not know what these things are. They're commonly known as water bears. And they're one of my favorite things, maybe kind of like my personal spirit animal um, because they can survive anything, including x-rays, cosmic rays. You can soak them in hydrogen peroxide. They just don't die. So for me, it's like axolotl, naked mole rats, and tardigrades are those animals that call most to my soul because they all have superpowers beyond what Mother Nature really normally does. Now, normally if you hit any biology with radiation and chemicals like that, it damages DNA using hydroxyl radicals, and these are just molecules of oxygen and hydrogen. Turns out there's a protein called DSUP, which stands for damage suppressor. By the way, if you're one of the many biologists who listen to the show, could you guys come up with better names? DSUP, seriously, who's gonna remember all this stuff? All right, I'll get off that. DSUP is, is Damage Suppressor, which shields the tardigrades from radiation. And when they add that protein to human cells, the protein also protects our cells against radiation. Now we figured out why that works. DSUP surrounds nucleosomes. Basically DNA wound around proteins called histones and the researchers at UCSD in La Jolla, by the way, the coolest university ever, you ever get to go there and look at the architecture, like that is the place where you wanna hang out and get your PhD. Anyway, they call it like a fluffy cloud of cotton candy, and researchers think that those proteins evolved to protect the tardigrades from hydroxyl radicals when they're dried out, which happens a lot because they live in moss, and that damage can't be repaired when the animals are dormant, so they have to protect themselves without an ongoing repair process. Now, we have similar proteins called high-mobility group nucleosome-binding proteins, or HMGNs, again, these dumb names. Anyway, researchers are looking to figure out whether the human proteins form a similar shield against DNA-damaging chemicals. Uh, I actually just think it'd be great to blend some tardigrades in my Bulletproof coffee, but there's gotta be a better way. And in the meantime, brand new study just came out that says, hey, if your mitochondria work very well, they provide the energy for the, uh, for the cells to protect your nuclear DNA. So good mitochondria equals less mutations. Maybe that's our way of doing it. We just can't survive being desiccated and dried out despite our best efforts. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. for a seven-day free trial. This guy is a speaker, performer, author who started his career in the NFL as a top pick for the Houston Oilers, played for the 49ers, and branched out into acting and wrote a one-man play called Run to the Litter that had a 50-city national run off-Broadway. And he's now a speaker and leadership coach and a guy who can own a stage like no one uh, I've ever met, really just shows up in in a powerful way. He's spoken to the Bulletproof Conference, good friend, an inspirational guy, but someone who pays attention to details you would not even know mattered. His name is Bo Eason. Bo, welcome to the show. Dave,
0: thanks to be back. I'm so happy to be here.
2: Now, now, the reason I had you back is a lot of people don't understand this. When when you work doing the kind of, we'll call it influencer work, that you and I do, you, you spend your time interacting with people. And in your case, you're teaching people how to show up on stage and, and how to have that winner energy that drove you in your sports career. Uh, but you also collect your best thoughts and the things that work, your, your most precious things. And eventually there's enough pressure in your head to write them down and to write a, uh, to create a book about it. And that's certainly what drives me. I know that's what drives you. You just came out with your book, There's No Plan B for Your A Game, which is really, how do you become the best at what you do in whatever field you're in. Similar mindset to Game Changers, highly different book, because this is based on your own ass-kicking in two different fields where you're at the very top of your game. That's unusual in two fields. So you're a unique specimen of humanity for your ability to do that, and you thought about why and how, and you put it in a book, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. You down?
0: Yes, uh, sounds cool. My favorite subject.
2: (laughs) One thing that impresses me and something that also scares me is that you've got 20,000 hours of experience on stage. And we've all heard the 10,000 hours rule. And and you talk about you know your A game and, and being at the very top of your field. Does everyone listening have to spend 10 or 20,000 hours doing something to be the best of their field? Because I got a lot of other stuff no. I want to do. Yeah,
0: I know. I know. Not everybody has to, but you know, it helps (laughs) those hours. You know, if you, if you look at the, uh, the, the the studies that like Anders Ericsson has done, you know, he's done these 30 year studies on what it takes to be, you know, world-class at several different things, whether it's violin or ping pong or, or athletics or piano, it doesn't matter. He just, they just have these certain hours that have to be put in. But if, you can push yourself beyond your current capacity, you know, outside your comfort zone, then those hours come fast and furious. Here's the problem. Most people are just afraid of that struggle of being outside the comfort zone. So it does, it takes years, right? So, um, you know, but, but look, here's another thing, Dave, you know, based on your work, based on what we know, We're going to be here anyway. I always say to people, people go, well, hey, I don't have 20 years, Bo. And I'm like, well, where are you going? I mean, you're going to be here, right? So let's put those 20 years to work. Let's master a thing and see where you end up. And you can measure yourself at the end of those 20 years because you're going to be here anyway. You might as well, you know, master something.
2: I interviewed Eric Kandel, who won a Nobel Prize around neuroplasticity. And his answer, I just, said, what can I do to make make myself more neuroplastic? And he just kept saying it was kind of sad for me. <laughs> he goes, practice, practice, <laughs> practice. And later I'm like, yeah. come on, there's got to be a way to do it faster. Practice, practice, practice. Uh, and at the end yeah. of this, I'm like, Eric has practiced, practice, practiced saying practice many times. Uh, do you think there are hacks, Bo? I, I mean, you, you've put in so many hours, you've done so hard, but is it is one type of training more effective than another? Like, how, how do I shorten the number of hours?
0: Well, here's the thing. Look, so when I first started doing this, I did it very kind of innately, kind of primitively when I was nine, right? So at nine, I made a declaration that I wanted to be the best safety in the NFL. So that took many years, right? But here's the cool part, Dave. Once I learned what it took to be the best safety in the world, then I knew what it took to be the best playwright or the best stage performer or the best author, the mastery is mastery. So once you've got one, you've got mastery nailed. Uh, it's the same principles. That's why you can. Li- it, what's cool about it is that you could live five, six different lives uh, with with careers and reach a world class level in one lifetime. Now that's pretty cool, right? So mastery is mastery, regardless of the discipline.
2: That is something that I also. I would, I would agree with my my career in cloud computing is <laughs> a little bit different than my <laughs> career in hacking human biology. But um, you, you learn how to do something, and it and it can actually be a gift that you learned in one field and took it to another. Um, there aren't any other professional athletes I'm aware of that have gone to Broadway other than maybe Mike Tyson uh, has done some powerful stuff. Different, you know, different yeah. athletes. Are there others uh, who who followed your path?
0: Um, there are some, but I don't think it was like a career path. It was more of a, I think producers went to them as celebrities, right? To Mike Tyson or to Joe Namath back in the day. Okay. And they, yeah, remember Broadway Joe. Right. Uh, this was his nickname because they put, he, look, he wasn't a stage performer, but because he won the Super Bowl as a New York jet, they said he's so popular. He'll bring in a bunch of people. I think they did the same thing with Mike Tyson um, they said, wow, people are going to just love to see him on stage. So they used these people's celebrity to get them on stage. I kind of went the other way. I wasn't a celebrity. I wasn't particularly known as an NFL player, uh, to, to that extent. And so I came in as a, I, I prepared to be a stage performer. So it took many years. I got really good at it and then did it. You know what I mean? So, my preparation was much different than theirs, where they probably were hired and then had to learn how to act and perform really quickly. So I went the long route to to master that stage performance, and then entered as a, as kind of a unknown guy until people started to know me from being a stage performer. There's some interesting
2: comparisons. To, like Mike is actually crazy powerful on stage. I I once yeah. had the opportunity to share a stage with him at a uh, at a private event uh for hedge fund managers in Hong Kong um when Bulletproof was getting off the ground. And this was a group of people that, they wanted to know how do we upgrade our brains. So I, I gave this this talk about that. And then Mike came on and I mean he brought the house down over and over and over. Even though he's had all these um you know all these hits to the head. You know, he'll be the first to admit it. In fact he did talk about that on stage. Uh, but I mean he, he was hilarious. His stage presence was was big and his his show did really well. Yeah. Uh, so so he was successful. No, no, for sure. But my question for you, though, is, you know, having seen that, so he's like, okay, I developed a brand, and then I got some coaching, and I came in, and I kicked ass. And you're like, well, I went and I met with Al Pacino, and he told me, I need to spend 10,000 hours anywhere I can get it. And this is the first chapter of your book, which is, I'm kind of paraphrasing it. But, yeah, and so you went out and you did your 10,000 hours. Didn't Mike... it in a faster more efficient way
0: (laughs) yeah here's here's the advantage that a guy like mike tyson has and this goes back to this primitive instinct right like so he is unapologetic of his uh human nature
2: very unapologetic yeah he just shows up
0: right most people especially when you come from the athletic world and you're dangerous They're very, we become very apologetic about our danger, about our own human nature. What made us really popular in one field can make you very unpopular in another. That dude is unapologetic when it comes to his natural disposition. I think that's a huge advantage. And in fact, that's something I train on stage, right? Like, so you've seen me train people in this very way to be unapologetic about their predatory nature most speakers are apologetic about their predatory nature cuz they don't want to offend anybody but mike tyson does not have that molecule in his body <laughs> which makes him ultimately watchable meaning you can't take your eyes off somebody who's in touch with their animal instincts so if if you and me put a, had a stage right now and we put a lion on that stage i guarantee you, no one in that audience Would move. No one in the audience would go to the bathroom. No one would speak. They would just stare in awe and not move. That's the same thing that humans have, except humans apologize for it, except guys like Mike Tyson, who are very rare. Most of us have to relearn how to not apologize for that instinct.
2: Now I, I've seen you uh, in your coach training programs, and I know you, you you serve bulletproof coffee to get their energy up, and so I've I've yeah. had a chance to drop in, and uh, I mean you show people how to stand, and, and you do some kind of weird intercept and you know, like hold your pelvis this way, like really like 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 own the own the stage like a tiger, uh, which is is something that you've learned, and, and there's some of that's in your in your book, um, but here's what I want to ask: your second chapter of the book, you talk about unnatural talent, and you say. Yeah the only natural thing about talented people is that they're adapting better than other people, and they push themselves hard. But, okay, how did Mike get his unnatural talent to just not be apologetic about, you know, being able to just show up as a full warrior guy on stage the same way you do? Like, like where did yeah. you guys get that? That wouldn't come from, from adaptation, did it?
0: I think for Mike, he had such training at such a young age, you know, and look, He's trained to be the most dangerous man on the planet, which right. he did, right? Which he definitely was.
2: Yeah. In fact, I, I'm going to have to get him on the show. I, I'm just, I'm realizing yeah. why haven't I interviewed him given that I've been on a stage with him? All right, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach out.
0: Okay. Yeah. But, but yeah, I, I think that's a big element of it. And he's just, he's so rare, okay. right? Which makes him so watchable. Like, it's almost like you're, you're, um, you don't know what's it, he's so unpredictable, which is gives him total power, also, yeah. right? Because he's not interested in making you happy, and he's not in right, he's not, not interested, yeah. he's, he's, he doesn't care if he offends anybody. And the rest of us are really conscious about that,
2: right? Now, are, are <laughs> you? I mean, I, I, I've seen you go on stage, you tell stories that piss off half the audience, I'm sure. Yes, but they're great
0: that's stories.
2: True. I mean, you, you yeah. seem like and, you're not carrying a lot of baggage around that, bow.
0: In in my regular life, I am I'm like you know in my regular life I'm like I'm trying to avoid conflict at all you know at uh, all costs. I, you, but on my stage okay. <laughs> life there's a certain permission out there right so I'm actually if I if you're on stage and you're not putting your nose up against conflict's chest you are dead in the water to begin with just like you Dave people aren't gonna watch you. Because if you're not going straight up against longevity and what our beliefs are about it, so you're putting your nose up against what the rest of the world thinks and pushing, no different than David and Goliath. That makes you watchable. That makes your company successful, and it makes it grow. If you got rid of that conflict of how society sees longevity, how society sees health, then you would be unwatchable just like the rest of the uh, people trying to do that. But you have a built-in conflict or a built-in enemy called the status quo. Same thing with Mike Tyson. Same thing with me when I'm on stage. I'm constantly putting my nose up against mediocrity. So anybody who believes in mediocrity is hates me, right? Because I'm, <laughs> atta- I'm, a- I'm attacking their way of life and their promotional way of life. I'm getting rid of it and I'm attacking it, so that makes me watchable, but also it makes uh, certain people who believe in mediocrity, uh, makes them upset.
2: Now, I, I've taught my kids, in part because we're, we're friends, and, and i spent a good amount of time with you, both seeing you, and you own room, like no one's gonna get up when you're talking in, in, in a room, undoubtedly, and you, you brought it that way for the conference. Um, but I'm just, you know, having dinner with you and all So I, I've taught my kids, Hey kids, there's nothing worse than being average. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> average is gross. Like, like either be above average or below average, but why would you want to make that your goal?
0: Yet that, yet that ends up being so many people's, uh, plan B, right? So I think everybody's kind of, I mean, this is why I wrote the book. Look, it's called, there's no plan B for your A game, because most people are living their plan B because they have a plan B that's a mistake, right? Your plan a is your plan a that's, that's the one you told your parents when you were seven and you said, mom, dad, I want to win the gold medal. And then many years later, you're telling people I'd really like to win a bronze medal. (laughs) And then, and then when you don't win a bronze, you're like, man, I just, the world was against me and I just couldn't win anything, you know? And that's how we end up at this mediocre level, that plan B. Um, but kids, they, they always have a plan A. They, no kid in the history of kids has ever gone to their parents and said this sentence, mom, dad, I have this, my ultimate dream is to win the bronze medal. No kid's ever said that. So think about that, Dave. No kid has ever said that, but yet we accept a bronze medal years later when we don't win the gold or we settle for some mediocrity because, but, or, or some average way of being. So that, that is what I'm, I'm against is I want to go back to our roots, back to our nature where we said, this is what I desire. This is what I want. And then that's the, there's no way out of that option. That's the option. That's the only one you got. And those are the people who do win gold medals. But, I just don't think I mean if you think back to our very nature our the day of our conception you know the day of our conception it's 300 million sperm versus you and you're one of those sperm 300 million to 1 odds that you're born yet through a million years of evolution and design, has taught all those 300 million sperm to do one thing, and that is fertilize the egg. And you and me were the champions on that day. And so now we're born into this world, and now we're supposed to fit into some mediocre suit or some mediocre life or job? That's what is being promoted to us and I'm like we're not made that way we're not made for second place we're it's not in our DNA so we so sometimes my kids and sometimes adults say to me you know what dad you know what bo it's really hard to be the best and i always say you know i know it's really hard to be the best but you should try being mediocre <laughs> that's that's really hard because <laughs> it's it's just not how we're set up Yet, if you look at the media, if you look at our culture in general, what's being promoted to us is average, mediocrity, you know, middle class, that's as high as you can expect to get. And they're talking to human beings who are just not made that way. So that's what I'm out to battle.
2: I I love that. So so I got to tell you a little story and I want to get your take on this uh, in, in the context of, you know, the A game. So my my daughter was going to this thing called the the Greek Olympics at her her, her Waldorf school, and you know they really focus on emotional development, and it's it's done wonderful things. My kids are happy and you know grounded, and and you know they're nice to butterflies, and I, I'm very happy with my kids. But <laughs> I'm like Anna, there's going to be one of these Greek Olympic things that most people don't practice on. So why don't you practice most on that one, so you can like maybe go for the gold, right? So. I went around. It's very hard to get a javelin delivered on Amazon because they keep bending. But I got a javelin. Okay, there's not a lot of 11-year-olds with a javelin. So we're in the front yard. We're watching YouTube videos and proper foot placement. She's got a pretty good javelin throw for an 11-year-old. And they go to the Olympics, and they're all doing their things, and at the end of the day, like, congratulations, we moved our average distance thrown up by 20%. We moved our average speed up by 20%. And they never mentioned which kid was fastest, which kid threw the furthest for any of the events. And I was like, oh my God, what is going on here? But it was like the outcome was average, but it, it, do you do you have any any idea how... Parents whose kids are doing this, parents who don't necessarily agree with that, Or I'm, I'm happy that we look at our average. Like, did we all improve? But some of us improve more than others. Is there an antidote to that that you tell your kids, You're like, hey, if, if you win, I'll give you chocolate? Like, I, I have no idea. But, like, like as a yeah. dad, as a pro ball player, as a guy who's like kicked ass in theater, how, how do you make kids um, so that they understand this, uh, this a game mentality?
0: i know it's it's you that's why i say you're up against the education system you're up against culture media I think publishing world uh, uh, for most of it movies hollywood you're up against uh video games even you're up against this thing of like average and we're always comparing ourselves to the average. Um and I would say I would just keep talking to them because look, you're the most powerful person in their life, you and your until wife. Until
2: they turn 14, so, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Until 14. But they they know. They know they do what you do, right? So they're only in competition with themselves like who's going to be the best at this thing and it sounds like she's already the best javelin thrower so she's just competing against herself you know and i'm constantly telling them the 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 day of their conception i'm talking about what's inside them what's their true nature and and i com- and i talk uh, to them about people like mike tyson like kobe bryant like people who are ultra competitive because listen I know this word competition gets a bad, uh, you know, rap these days in our culture. But, you know, if you look, the first rule of biology is life is competition. Life is competition. So you and me, if we weren't superior competitors, we would not be here today. If our ancestors weren't good at competing for mates and food and shelter, you and me would not be here. We are ultimate competitors, but we just keep apologizing for it, right? Here's what I know about kids, Dave, which I know your kids know this because I've been around you and your wife. Um, kids know the score. So here's an example. My daughter is, you know, young. she's 10, but this was when she was like six or seven. She's playing in this basketball game, right? And they start beating this team like 50 to five, right? So the scoreboard keeper does, you know, what he thinks is right and turns off the scoreboard so that the other team can't see how bad they're being beaten. What the heck? Right? right? So, but here's what's funny, Dave. Here, I, and this is my seven-year-old daughter. I go, oh, why did you think they, sh-? after the game, I said, why do you think they turned the scoreboard off? Well, what do you think the score was? And my my daughter goes, it was 75 to eight.
2: <laughs> she kept Like sh-
0: she knew the score. And I went around and checked with the other kids. The losers knew the score. The winners knew the score. They knew it in their head because kids have that instinct to see how they compete and how they measure up against other girl basketball players in this case, they know. So if you give them a participation trophy or a participation ribbon, do you know what they do? They accept it just to placate us adults, <laughs> but, but they know the deal. They know exactly where they place like, you know, say they have a hundred meter run and like a hundred kids run across the field. Your daughter, my daughter, everybody's daughter on this on this podcast right now, they know what place they got. Hey, I got 56th place. Hey, I got second. You know, they know. Kids know. So why are we keeping it from them? We're trying to hide them, You know. But you know, protect them.
2: It feels like like no one likes to see another person in pain. And in fact, we're wired, I believe, at a, at a cellular level to help our help our species, to help all life. Like it, it's, yep, there are things that get in the way of that a lot, but we're, we're wired to do that. And so when we see a child in pain, we're saying, how do I take away the pain? But it seems like the way we learn to walk is by falling over, and it hurts when you fall over, so you don't do it again. So pain is a teacher. Right. Yes. But too much pain or, or lack of recovery are actually harmful and, and damaging for people. Do you have any advice for adults who are working on you know, their A game at becoming really the best in the world, uh, becoming masters of something? How do they know when you're pushing yourself? And, and you write in the book about deliberate practice and hard work. How do you know when you actually like overtrained and you're going to pull a ligament or you're going to burn out? Like, how, how do you surf the edge of burnout? And, and, and experiencing pain and being comfortable with it and actually harming yourself. Because this is yeah. the problem with A players.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. For one, you got to listen to your body. And usually A players are so present with their body. They're in great communication with their body. They know where that edge is. And they're that, always challenged. No.
2: That's bullshit. You're such a pro athlete. None of my A player software developers have a clue what their bodies are doing. And they're the best in the world at what they do.
0: Oh, really? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking that mindset. Okay, you got me there. (laughs) <laughs> okay, then we need to get in touch with our uh, body, guys. Hold on. Did, did, did
2: Bo Eason, the toughest guy, just our to get in touch with my body? Bo, you're letting me down, I man. I've you had seven knee surgeries. Yeah, punch punch uh, yourself in the face a few times and walk it off. No, Come on. <laughs> my, body
0: was, my body was communicating to me, Dave. I just wasn't listening. <laughs> well, I, okay,
2: th- that's probably more real. I, I, that was my experience as a software developer guy. Like, oh my God, there was a signal to noise in there and like you know when you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing, but I just didn't know to listen. Uh, yeah, So yeah. And, and if you're an actor, you're on stage, okay, no one has better body awareness besides pro athletes and actors. So so you're like, you're a master of that in both of those things. Yep. But like a painter yep. may not have that. Or, yeah. you know, uh, how, how do you, how do people know, let's, put, let's even make it tighter for you. It might have been too general of a question anytime you're focusing on hard work and you're pushing yourself beyond your comfort levels, you're also flirting with burnout. How do you know Mm -hmm. when you're going to go over burnout?
0: Mm. (laughs) Yeah. So Anders Erickson did this test, a study of the top violinist in the world. So took the top, I think this top 14 virtuoso violinist in the world. And he asked him a bunch of questions and studied each one of them. And now the second tier right the second tier was down below them but he talked to the top 14 and he asked him this question were you ever called by god to play the violin and or was the did the violin just call to you was it in your genes how did you become the best violin player in the world and every one of them said the same thing no they were not called by god to play the violin they were handed the violin at a certain age by a parent and we're told to play it. And they also asked this question, because I get this question every day, Dave, like, Bo, do you did you love football? And I was like, no, I didn't love football. Oh, Bo, do you love the theater? I'm like, no. And they go, well, what do you love? And they asked the violinist, what, if you don't love the violin, then why are you the top? And they all said, I fell in love with my improvement day in and day out. And if you look back and I look back at my like being the best safety, I didn't like the position of safety, but I liked what it demanded of me and what it required of me. And I got to measure myself and improve each day. But the only way to improve is you got to be beyond that comfort zone that we're talking about. Otherwise there's no adaptation can take place. Right. So, so once we're challenging homeostasis, our nose is up against it, we know we're improving and that's what you fall in love with. And that flies, that, there's no such thing as burnout when that's happening. You're like recognizing your own improvement.
2: So, so you get a little dopamine squirt every time you recognize your own improvement if you're measuring it and, and you're aware of it. And you're right, I, I see this actually in, in my daughter. Now, the first time that we really had her kind of exercise on on purpose you know, with intent, um, where you know kids normally they just play around. you know, We we live in the forest, We're like go go climb a tree, and then that's their exercise. But she came she came back and she said, "Daddy, I really like that. I can see a difference in how my body works because I'm doing this." And and it was like this like sense of excitement. And so it, it sounds like kind of what's going on with all these people who are masters is they're seeing the improvement, and you it feels good to to improve so there's a little bit of ego in that as well though isn't there
0: i agree i, th- I think there is and i think that's healthy okay. but also i i think it's it's great that she's recognizing the difference in her body yeah. so she's challenged she challenges homeostasis now her body and brain adapt to that new demanding situation and her body shifts so that she can survive so she can be more efficient at what she's doing that we all love. We just don't do that enough. I think burnout's something else. I think that's something like you're just beating your head against something that is a dead end. You know what I mean? I think- What, what, what when, if you're when,
2: working on improving you just don't improve? I mean, there are people, you know, this is my fifth job as a, you know, as a, a manager of marketing and, and I keep screwing up every time I do it. And so I, I feel like I'm just failing all the time. Yeah, at what point you're like, you know what, maybe I suck at marketing and I should, uh, I, 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 I should go into, you know, another career perhaps as a barista uh, or, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. That, like, like what when, when do you know I, that? Like, actually, I'm just not destined to this because I suck at it.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I've, i you know, we've all done that a few God, times, yeah. right? Like you, You. yeah, you make a declaration. You're, you think that you're calling, you're, you're going toward it and you keep getting your ass kicked. And eventually you're good. What I always say is people go, Well, Bo, what if I pick the wrong thing? Like, what if managing marketing is not the right thing? And I say, There's no such thing as the wrong thing. The wrong declaration, the wrong dream for you will always reveal the right dream for you. And the good part about it is you'll know you'll be able to take some blows, you know, because you already have. And now you redirect that new declaration which is going to come to you eventually when once you're you hit a dead end it'll keep hitting you and you'll go oh there's the green light bam I'm going in that direction and that's why I always say don't don't not choose a declaration because you're afraid you're going to choose the wrong one the wrong one always reveals the right one and now you already have mastery in your in your blood because you've been doing it. And now that that next declaration, boom, takes off. Let,
2: let's talk for a minute, uh, for people who haven't read your book, um, this is There's No Plan B for your A game. And you talk about the difference between goals and declarations. Uh, yeah. And can you share with people listening uh, who haven't yet read your book, what your definition of those two things are and which one you do?
0: Yeah, I, the goals don't do anything for me. I mean, just the word, it doesn't do enough. I think of soccer. I think of hockey goals, but I'm not. It doesn't turn me on. I, I remember as a kid being very moved by the Declaration of Independence, and I, I wasn't moved because somebody wrote it. I was I was moved that people wrote that thing. Yet you and me don't know them, and that was 250 years ago, and I'm moved by the fact that for 250 years. All these millions of people, us Americans, in the last 250 years and and those going forward, actually make this declaration come to life every day. It's almost like they wrote a play or a movie that expressed our freedoms. That was the character. Our character as Americans was to express our freedoms in the way we moved, in what we ate, in how we ran, in how we spoke. We lived into the declaration and brought it to life for 250 years and whoever, who knows how long it's going to go. Well, that's why I like declarations. So I make a declaration no different than the Declaration of Independence that said, when I was nine, I want to be the best safety in the world. And then when I was 29, I wanted to be the best stage performer in the world. And then I was 49, I wanted to be the best speaker. So those are my declarations. And it takes many years for me to live those out. Here's why I like, uh, that's why I like declarations. But here's what's cool about declarations, Dave. Do you know how like when you set a goal or even a mission, then you have to make this long list of to-do list and you have to fulfill on this list and you got to gather a bunch of stuff. Declarations is more a way of being. And if you declare to be the best safety in the world, you can be that. You can be the best safety in the world on day one of that 20-year plan. So I I was only nine, and I was being what the best safeties in the world were being. I was eating what they ate. I I trained like they trained. I acted like I dressed like them. Um, I dreamed about them. And then the world caught up with my declaration and eventually I was that guy. I was that guy. So, and I've done that, you know, three, four times in my life. So it's, it's exciting. It's a fun way to do it because now you can be the best in the world at whatever you do today. And then you start living it out and bringing it into existence like the Declaration of Independence. And eventually the world catches up with your declaration and your dream, and it comes to fruition. That's cool.
2: I, I think you, you nailed it there. When you declare something, you're stating a fact, and your nervous system, even those little compute nodes in your cells called mitochondria, you know, all, all the distributed things in the body, they will listen on some level, and they don't understand time. They just understand is something or is something not. And I mean, I, I've did this uh, part of the, the 40 Years of Zen, the Neurofeedback Institute that I started uh, that, that's helped me program my own brain. I, I teach people when that we're doing intentions in altered states, like, like how dare you write intentions says, I want to do X, which is a goal. Look, if you were to pray to God, and God was there and God listened, and you said, I want X, he'd say, great, you want X, and he'd go about his business. Because you just stated what you want. You didn't state you were doing it. You didn't state you were even going to do it. You didn't state that you were already doing it. You just stated a desire. And a desire is a goal, and a declaration is a state of being in a fact. So if people just learn that about their affirmations in the morning, the stuff they write in the mirror, the stuff they put in their journal, the stuff they say when they wake up in the morning, that alone would change the world. But you, you nailed it there, and that's, that's just an important part of personal development that's missing. Yeah, yeah. And, for and sure. you bake that into the book in a way that I think is, is very easy to understand.
0: Yeah, the declaration piece is is it's a huge part of the book because it's been a huge part of my life. And every one of these declarations seem impossible when I started, all of a sudden became kind of real and much quicker than I thought.
2: You also recommend in your book that people use the words the best in in their in their declaration. But OK, here, here's, here's a little uh, logic question for you. Four people wake up in the morning and say, I am going to be the best you know, tight end <laughs> on Earth. Only one of those four is going to do it. What are the other three going to do?
0: Well, they're going to go right along with it. I mean, it's going to be a competitive race. And they'll, if that was the case, if four people, which it never happens because no one uh, no one will commit this long. No one has this kind of mindset. But if there were four guys that say, I'm going to be the best tight end in the world in 20 years, think of the position of tight end. Think of the sport or the art form of football in 20 years if those guys r- compete against one another and raise the bar that
2: high. But that three of them are going to wake up and say, I didn't do it.
0: Well, who? but who's to say? Because it's always... There's always another game, uh, okay. Dave, and there's al- not even another game. There's another quarter. There's another play, and this guy might pass him on this play, and then this guy could pass him uh, on the next play,
2: so it's it. so, so, <laughs> very fluid. So, so Superhuman just hit number 40 out of all books on Amazon, but that was for an yes. hour because <laughs> it was, yeah, it was right. number 62, and it was hopefully be number 22, but all right, so, so you might be the best for a brief period, but at least you hit the best, and you are in the top quartile.
0: Yeah, Dave, I used to, when I would go on stage, so I did, uh, I did run to the litter, my play for 1300 performances, right? So when you do something 1300 times, you're looking at yourself in the mirror before you're, you know, you're backstage, you're about to go on stage, you got your costume on, you got your makeup on, you're about to go out, I would, I would play games with myself, I would look at myself in the mirror, and I would go, tonight, this is going to be the best performer. It's going to be better than Marlon Brando. It's going to be better than, than uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier. Only for this next 90 minutes. I'm going to be the greatest person to ever walk on stage for 90 minutes. Can you do it? I'm talking to myself. And I'm like, I can do it for 90 minutes. And I go out there and for 30 minutes, maybe I was the best. Maybe for one minute. But at least that was my attempt. And it raised the level of performance for all performers. You understand? Yeah. So who's to ever say who's the best? You know what I mean? Okay. It's a game that we're playing with ourselves.
2: Interesting. So, so there's a bit of a uh, bit of mushiness around the numbers for most of these things. I mean, if you're the best IndyCar driver, you either were number one or you weren't, though. Yeah, uh, for but sure. At least on this and, race, but next year you might be number one if you're number two this year. Is your point?
0: That's right. Yeah. So those things are fluid and that's what you need is you need that competition because it's always nice when you see, you know, two great tennis players go at each other, right? One passes, then the other passes. And that's what we love. And that's what they love because they get better and the sport raises. The problem is, Dave, even our greatest competitors who are supposed to be our greatest competitors right now, like in the NBA, if you notice... They try to form super teams and ask less of themselves so that they can win championships, which are phony to begin with, because <laughs> they're, they're building teams in like a crooked way. And I'm like, I, I, and then basketball then goes downward. It ticks downward because now you've got five of the best players all on the same team. How does that make sense? That doesn't make sense. True competitors compete against one another, not on the same team. So that makes the the whole sport and the whole world now tick down instead of tick up because of the competition isn't there.
2: Interesting, so you wanna distribute the best across all the teams so that we can have some uh, some growth. Okay, I, I that actually makes sense from a systems perspective. I totally get it. <laughs>
0: I love love how yours and my brain are like trying to figure this out in our own particular way.
2: You got to set up the environment around you to get the results you want. And you're saying a competitive environment is going to create better results than an environment where one team is so dominant that they smash everyone else and then high five each other. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I I can't argue with your logic.
0: And it's unwatchable. If you notice, the human instrument will not watch that very long. We desire... Conflict, and if we don't have any conflict, there's no.
2: It becomes boring, and we won't watch it. So, like a full on beatdown is much less interesting than a than a good than a good competition. All right, I I would agree with you 100. percent Yeah, it, in your book, uh, just going back to to the way you're teaching people how to be the best in the world at things, you talk about something that I found a little bit confusing. So I, I've run strategy for billion dollar companies, uh, and you know how is the question you ask yourself okay if our if our declaration is like my, my recent declaration i am going to live to at least 180 years old and and like it's gotten a lot of people like you can't do that how dare you and like well you can you know I, I i'll be sad when i visit your grave if you don't join me but like it's okay right uh, and that that's definitely a strong declaration it gets people's attention and it's also i'm telling myself that very consciously i am going to live that yeah. long but i also must ask myself how am i going to do that in fact I had to write a book about it so I could study all the papers on how so I'd know what to do and what not to do. But yep. in your book, you're saying asking yourself how you're going to do something is a dangerous question and you probably don't want to do it. You say, quote, it's almost always a losing question.
0: Yeah. Okay, Why? Yeah. <laughs> Here's the distinction between the way you're asking it and the way most people ask it. So most people go like this. I want to live to 180 years old but how? How am I going to do that? It's it's with the intent of somebody talk me out of this declaration I don't want to do it. You're not doing that, Dave. Oh, they they want to
2: be told it's impossible. So they ask how's a leading question so that they can
0: so they can get out of it. Oh, okay. They don't they don't want a, that declaration. So if you if your son, if you and your son came to me and you go, "Bo, here's my son. What's your son's name again, Dave?" Uh, Alan. Alan. So, hey, Bo. Alan wants to be the best safety in the world. Can you help him? And I would say yes. I'll help him. Um, and if it, but I would not say this to you, and I wouldn't want Alan saying this to me. But Bo, how are we going to do that? All I care about is the declaration, because the how will figure itself out. We'll figure that part out. I just don't want asking that question too early because usually that's a way out of your declaration yep you understand that's that's the distinction about the question of how of course you've got to get to the point where alan's going to go to me okay bo what do we do on day one and i go uh i'm glad you asked let's go we're going to start right now this is the how we're going to start and we'll start with food and we'll start being on the grass at 5 a.m. And he's going to start backpedaling. That's the how. But I don't want Alan going like this. Well, what? how are we going to do this? Because he's only looking for a way out. I just want the declaration to be brave and out there. Because, But how just destroys that. It gets people out of their declaration. I don't want that.
2: Okay, I, I got it. That makes a lot of sense. So if how leads to an excuse... And and a sense of impossibility, or I can't, then you don't do it. But actually, having a plan, and and in your case, the how is you're going to practice with with focus and determination. And okay, I I understand. Well, that
0: that that how is coming soon enough, right? Like if you're going to live to be 180 years old, your night, your evening tonight is much different then everyone else who doesn't have that declaration, right? So what you eat, what time you go to bed, what supplements you may take, all those things come into play right now. And those don't even come into play for most people. We're just thoughtlessly like going through our day, you know, but your declaration is requiring everything. And so that how is on its way to you quickly.
2: All right, I I like that that subtle difference there, but subtlety isn't necessarily the name of your game, especially when you're on stage, because in in terms of uh, sort of pissing people off, you have a whole chapter in your book on domination. Yeah, I mean, I had Miss Mistress Natalie was on the show a while back uh, talking about uh, that other kind of domination, but you you talk about dominating yourself, dominating competition, and. Uh, it's kind of a a theme for you. So what does domination mean to Boezen and how do you teach that as something that's good versus at least weird?
0: (laughs) I know, I know. People, look, uh, so many words in my book are like even chapters like competition, like predatory nature, like um, um, uh, domination. Those are bad words in our society right now, right? Like they're kind of frowned upon. And so I think you, we have to use words like that to arrest people's development, like to stop them in their tracks. Like they're, so people are going along with their lives, Dave, like you're, you're, some people in your audience who don't know you and they're just meeting Dave and they're hearing his declaration. And so that arrests their life right there. Like when Dave says, I want to live to 180 years old that arrests their belief system and everything about them. That's that's great. So does domination. I'm not talking about dominating other people in my book. I'm talking about dominating the space around you, dominating your space. And I, you, you've heard the term, I don't know if you've heard this, Dave, but I think somebody even wrote this book and it's, uh, the term is called Frank Sinatra Doesn't Move Pianos. Have you heard no. that term? Frank Sinatra doesn't move pianos. So here's, here's how domination goes. This is how Frank Sinatra dominated his field. And here's the questions that were asked of, of, of uh, Frank Sinatra. Hey, Frank, did you sell the tickets to your show? No. Frank, did you move the piano in the middle of the stage where it is? No. Did you uh, prepare your pre-performance meal? No. Did you hand out brochures for your show? Did you usher people to your seats? No, no, no. What does Frank Sinatra do? He dominates. Here's how he dominates. He sits at a piano and sings. He does what he actually does. That's domination. The rest of us are running around trying to be multitaskers, trying to do a thousand different things and jack of all trades, and we're no good at any of them. Think of a thoroughbred racehorse. Thoroughbreds do not think about what they're going to eat. They don't think about who's going to train them. They don't think about what they're going to do today. They don't think about how they're going to prepare their their next day. It everything is taken care of. A thoroughbred racehorse, and that racehorse does one thing: it runs and it runs fast. That's it. I, domination is a chapter I have in that I want people to start naming what they do and that's all they do so that they know that they're a thoroughbred racehorse or they're Frank Sinatra. They're actually achieving the top level because they do what they do and the rest is all taken care of. That's domination. What about that?
2: That, that, that sounds pretty good. Okay. I, I'm going to be a little bit blunt here. You're, you're kind of rich. You've had 1,300 uh, of these shows on Broadway. So um, my guess is that you don't have to live paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Right. Okay, and I'm I have lived paycheck to paycheck. I, people don't know I used to scoop ice cream at Baskin Robbins. I used to uh, put truck parts in boxes for five years. So I've, I've lived paycheck to paycheck too. Um, but it it's great. To, to say that now, but how is the average person listening to this who doesn't have someone to move their piano for them who is working on becoming someone who has that level of domination? How do they drop out of all that distracting garbage so they can focus on the domination?
0: Yeah, that's a gr- it. It's a great question, and it's often the one that I get the most pushback. Um, like you, I you know delivered food and did all kinds of yeah. weird weird jobs. You're, you're, you're
2: a real guy. Your, your story yeah. about how you came up is crazy in football. <laughs> it's in your first chapter in the book. But yeah. So yeah. You're, you're you're a you're a guy who's lived it.
0: Yeah, so I'm not saying that you, I was born with a silver spoon and that people just wait hand and foot on you,
2: me. You earned it.
0: But yeah. yeah, but that's the that's the declaration. That's where we're headed. You're headed that way. Now you might not be able to afford that today, and I couldn't at one time, but now I can. And there's certain things I I can't afford to do, right, or have. But I, that's the next thing on the list. The I just want you to know what what you do to be the best. Like, um, is like if you think of elite athletes, it's pretty easy. Like LeBron James or Tom Brady, they're not spending a lot of time grocery shopping or wondering what they're going to be doing, or who's going to give them some rehab on their quad, or are they getting in cryotherapy or not? They're not making any decisions. That's already decided. All of us can have that in our future, but we have to intend it. It's got to be part of the declaration. And you got to start thinking in those terms now. Take away a little thing, you know, like say you need uh, somebody to, to you know, you don't want to prepare food anymore. Like you're, you're spending a lot of time, you know, preparing food Then don't do that. Hire somebody to do that or have somebody do that. That way, I just want you to get used to this at first. At first it's kind of baby steps, but eventually you're a thoroughbred racehorse and all you're doing is what you do. Now that is a cool cool life. You know why it's cool? Because now the world gets better because you're taking your art form to another level and all those people around you are now employed because that is their dream. Their dream is to fulfill your dream and to make sure that this thoroughbred racehorse is fed properly or is recovered properly. That becomes their dream and then they fulfill on that. It's a very cool life.
2: Okay. I I really like that. And I, the advice that I've given on stage, especially to uh, women entrepreneurs, it's like you got to start small, but i I love it that you have a room full of you know five hundred people, and you're like how many of you are still washing your own socks? right and like literally three quarters of the hands will go up and and it's like, how dare you? Yep. Like. Yep. And you know what? There's been lots of times where I, I didn't just wash my own socks. I waited at the laundromat because that was all I could do. Yep. Right. But at least I did something useful. While I waited at the laundromat. But the the deal is, even if it's the tiniest things that you can that you can shed, or you can make your kids do it. Yep. Like, hey, kids, you're cooking one meal a week because I've already done it for ten years, or your mom's done it for ten years, and we want you to learn how to do it. Right. And that's just how it's going to be. And we just instituted that. And usually, in fact, the kids have done a great job. It, it's actually been good food. Yeah. So. But but the whole point there is get it off your plate a little at a time, but if you don't know what your uh, what area you're going to dominate, you don't have your declaration, you don't even know what to get off your plate or why you're getting off your plate, and the people who are helping you, your supporters um, who help it says, oh, I'll be happy to take that off your plate because it's for a good cause, they won't know it either. So, and this this that's what I like about your book is that you're laying this out in a very understandable way to say, like, this is why you have to focus on that.
0: Yeah, that's why you gotta start with declaration and then you'll get to domination a little bit later, yeah.
2: Now, you also talk about something called recompete in your book. Yeah. And and you say competitive people are pushy and self-centered and uncaring. What's the flip side of that?
0: Well, that, I mean, I think that's how it's, that's how it's promoted and perceived in the media and stuff. That's what people think. It's that, look, if you look at our very nature, we talked about this earlier, like the first rule of biology is we are ultimate competitors. That's how we're made. And so now you're supposed to apologize for that. I just, I don't understand that way of thinking. And and, and I like competition. Like if you're noticed kids like when they're doing a race and you go, okay, kids race over there. And then the whoever gets first place touches the monkey bars first. And then second, third, the kids, when they're running are giggling and laughing and they're trying to be number one. That's how, you know, competition is fun. Uh, It's only us adults that make it, give it a bad connotation because competition is, makes the world better. Not worse. Okay. That's why we've got to embrace it. And I just, like we talked about earlier, it's just like the ultimate competitors in our society have decided that they'd rather win championships than compete. Well, how much does a championship mean if there's no competition? Does, it, does that trophy even mean anything?
2: Okay. Okay. It, it's, so your concept of relearning to compete is really kind of what we talked about before. Like, like in, in in a competitive environment, we're all stronger. And if none of us tries to compete, we end up being a bunch of jellyfish.
0: That's right. That's right. right. And it, we just have to re-remember who we are at our very base, which is we're ultimate competitors.
2: Now, it, it, there's another side of competition here, right? Like there, there are people who, you know, to them, competition beating someone, it's about humiliating the opponent. It, it's about it's about causing harm to another person's spirit. You know, like, 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 you know, taking pleasure in their pain. And then there's people who are saying, we competed fairly, and I performed at my very best, and I was better than you, and I could celebrate that, and, and you're a great guy. And like, I even see this like in, in MMA, right? Yeah, yep. you get, oh, yeah. So, some guys have that, like, you know, okay, the honorable warrior. And there's other guys who are like, I was bullied in seventh grade, I never got over it. That's why I'm in MMA and I'm gonna, you know, break your arm and spit on you when I when I kick your ass and like and literally take joy in your pain.
1: Yeah.
2: And and I think that's why competition gets a bad name because I, I agree. Okay. You're, you're, how you're do right. you filter out the douchebags who are in the the create humiliation as competition?
0: I, I don't think they're in I don't think they're true competitors. They
2: they're, they're I, not, but, but they're I, they're victimizers walking around in the guise of competitors and, yeah. and what they're doing though is they're giving competition a bad name. Like like how do we how do we get those those people out of here?
0: I, I just don't, th- look, they're damaged, right? You know, they're yeah. just trying to fulfill something that can never be filled. So I wouldn't even include them in the competitive world. They're, they're there, but they're not there very long. The, the ultimate competitors, the true ones, the ones we admire, they actually, even though they're trying to kill each other in the ring, they have so much respect and yeah. o- honor for one another. It's amazing. I remember the toughest guys I ever had to play against, I hated them in the moment, but right after we were done, I was like, dude, I love this dude. I mean, that because he made me better. Even though I lost, he made me better. I got better in this moment. And that, that's the distinction. I don't think those other guys are even competitors. I just think they're, you know, bullies or just punks or whatever you want to call it. it just, they're not even part of the deal.
2: So so if you're competing in uh, in a field, whether it's football, theater, or speaking coach, whatever- and and you come across someone like that, right? Does that mean you take them out at the knees so they won't play next year?
0: No, <laughs> uh, no. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Like,
0: what do you do? I t- I, that's not my competition, right? <laughs> so they're 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 not even competing. So I don't even I don't even include them.
2: But but aren't they polluting the competitive environment?
0: They, of course, yeah. They're polluting their little sewer over there, which I'm not gonna get in and, and wrestle with them in their <laughs> sewer, right? I'm gonna stay competitive with the people they, that
2: Okay, I, so they, they're not on your level, they're not on your field, and they try to climb up there, and then they fall off because everyone can see that they're copycats or you know unethical or whatever their deal is. That's
0: right, yeah. that's right.
2: Cool. God knows there's a few parasites out there. Oh, yeah. Uh, you, you actually have... Uh, 16 rules to incorporate into your life. And we're not going to be able to go through 16 in the the time we got in the interview, but they're, they're awesome. A couple of them that stood out for me. I will be unreasonable.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Just like your, your whole life is based on that one (laughs) day.
2: Yeah. You know, I I won't go it alone. I will live beyond my current capacity. So I, I think these will resonate with anyone who likes bulletproof radio. You guys know, I, I wrote game changers. I, I studied, uh, Five hundred people like Bo. In fact, Bo, you are one of the people I interviewed uh, for that book. To say what do people have in common, and and that, and sort of say what what can you learn from that? There were forty six laws, and you went through your own life, your own experience, and you're a coach for many people, and you came up with your set of rules here, um, including number sixteen, which is uh, <laughs> uh, which is an absolute competitive art of husbandry. Your rule number sixteen, your last one, is I will get a dawn. Oh yeah, and. And Dawn is your wife. So so basically, uh, you just paid your wife like an awesome compliment there. And by the way, Dawn is awesome. Um, I tried to get her once, but she was uninterested. And uh, I'm kidding.
0: Oh my gosh, that's so funny!
2: Yeah, but you know, Don is a is a great human being. But you're saying you'll get a partner in life who's really supportive of you in that rule, and and that you'll you'll seek that out. I think that that actually was uh, was both humble and also really good advice. So.
0: Yeah, no, that's no, <laughs> and it's something that comes out of my mouth every time I'm at dinner or social event. I'm like, hey, you got to get yourself a Don, and because they're always going, "Well, your wife's amazing," I go, "Yeah, you got to get yourself one." Her name's Dawn. You get yourself a Dawn. And <laughs> and she's just one of those people that that, you know, most partnerships one plus one equals two, right? But when you're with a, somebody like Dawn, it's one plus one equals a million, because that's what she brings to the table in partnerships. So everyone's got to have it if they want to reach the top.
2: So, so, so guys, uh, you're listening to this stuff, especially, you know, younger guys, you're just learning how to like manage relationships. So what Bo just did right there, he just guaranteed himself like a whole year of getting some. Just, <laughs> just, just from what he did right there. So Bo, well played, my friend. Well played.
0: I have to make sure my wife listens in on this
2: podcast. <laughs> she's going to, she's going to kill me when, when I see her next.
0: <laughs> right. I tried to get Don. <laughs> oh, that's funny
2: but uh that advice is really is really uh just profound and awesome and it's a great way to close up the show we have one more question and it has to do with superhuman uh my new anti-aging book how long are you gonna live bo wow i i'm i
0: i've always had like instinctually i've always had the number like right around a hundred in my mind
2: you is know? that your declaration
0: well, I haven't made that declaration because I wanted to talk to you about it first and get some <laughs> consultation. And then, you know, maybe I can up my game a little bit.
2: Well, there is value in the declaration. Seriously, telling yourself you're gonna live a certain amount of time probably will move the needle. It's certainly not gonna harm things, right? Yeah, right. That's All true. Right, so, so you gotta do some work on that. In fact, uh, here's the thing. You could join me in practicing not dying. I'm getting really good at it.
0: Wow, that's actually a great declaration. <laughs> That's so, that's so good,
2: oh. So around, around 100 right now, subject to a formal declaration later.
0: Right, yeah, I'll come All up right. with a, a good one next time.
2: You've been listening to Bo Eason, his new book is There's No Plan B for Your A Game. I we went through some of the cool stuff in there. Bo's just a fascinating guy to see him on stage, whether he's, he's teaching you how to speak, whether he's doing his Broadway game, just he will captivate you. And his book is equally captivating. And BoEasonBook.com, B-O-E-A-S-O-N, book.com. Anywhere else they should go, Bo?
0: Yeah, they can go to BoEasonBook.com. That's that's the best place. But they can go Amazon. They can go to wherever they buy their books, you know, Barnes & Noble. Uh, it's everywhere, and it's a bestseller. And so uh, we're really excited about it.
2: Well, congrats on your success with the book. And uh, it, if you're listening to this, you're like, "Oh, great! Here's another another couple authors, Dave and Bo, hawking their books." I I just got to tell you, Bo probably makes more from going on stage for a couple hours than he will in his book, uh, and and it's the same for me, yeah. right? Yeah. Like you write a book to change lives and to concentrate your thinking and to distill your most precious knowledge. So, um, you know, spending seventeen or twenty, whatever the books are going for right now it's just you saying, I want to get the most distilled wisdom and knowledge from this person that I can. If you liked Bo on the show, you like what he had to say and and something woke up in you around, you know, maybe it's okay to be competitive and I can still care about, about my competitor, even if I win. Um, look, if that resonates with you, I promise you that if you spend a few hours reading Bo's book, the ROI will be very, very high. So do him and me the honor. If you decide to read our books, leave a review. Like It's it's like tipping your, your Uber yeah. driver or your barista because we pay attention to it. So read Bo's book if this interview was awesome. Uh, read my book, uh, unless you're a bad person. And, and <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> all right, on that note Bo, thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio. Thanks Dave,
0: had a blast just like always.